Well, good morning, everybody. Feel free to take your seat if you haven't. Um, I get the opportunity to keep going in Jonah, so thank you, Pastor Kendall. <laughs> this is sort of the, uh, the classic um, first step right out of Bible college or seminary is you took a class on Jonah, and now you have a few weeks of sermons to get your act together at your new church or something like that because you don't know how to preach, and all you've ever done is Jonah. <laughs> so so um, I'm grateful uh, to, do, to uh, preach Christ in Jonah. Um, if you weren't here for the first uh, chapter, um, I preached mostly on um, sovereignty and backsliding. If you'd like to listen to it, my wife would probably suggest you listen to it at about 75% speed, um, maybe 50% speed. <laughs> I'll slow it down this time around. <laughs> Uh, before I uh, do the reading of the word, I thought it fitting to share a story um, that I think catches us up for chapter two. Um, it's not a happy story. It's a very true story, um, and it's a very important story. Um, this story uh, starts in my hometown. Um, there was this beloved pastor um, planning a church, little Baptist church. Um, he committed to the ministry when he was young. Um, he, he pastored this church in this, throughout the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, and uh, planted with pretty much nothing. Uh, he, was, he was a driven man, a born leader, very shrewd, very intelligent, um, and within a few years, the congregation had built a church on a plot of land that they providentially bought for almost nothing. Uh, the pastor laid the foundation and the brickwork himself while working an office job to provide for his family. And um, there's even a story of the men having a main cross beam that was too heavy to lift into position and that was lifted that very day by a crane that had just happened to be going down their old country back road. It seemed in the life of this church that God was very much smiling on uh, the whole ordeal. Um, I'm sure some of these facts were romanticized, but this is, this is a very true story. Um, and he preached at this church for decades. Um, he saw decisive growth. They opened a school in the church. Um, they bought a bus for the youth group. It came together as far as uh, church plants go. Um, he, he was, um, the whole congregation loved this pastor, that he was the man in town. Um, he was a father to the fatherless, a committed servant of the church, and he was just one of the strong ones. Um, and then something else happened. After a series of deaths in the family, his wife inherited about half a million dollars. Um, today, that would be almost a million dollars. Um, imagine that for our church. <laughs> if uh, something just happened, we would think this is a blessing from the Lord. Unfortunately, um, to God's glory, this pastor's story spiraled from here forward. Um, he had a stroke. Uh, a few of his bad habits caught up with him. The stress and the stress eating over the years of a taxing demand of building this church resulted in a brilliant man losing his strength and something even more important, his compassion for people. I remember after hearing the story, I asked people who were very intimately involved, what happened? And the simple thing was this, he lost his compassion for people. Um, he started to preach with guns on all fronts, uh, fire and brimstone alone for all other denominations and much less concern for unbelievers. Meanwhile, his wife and the church had trusted him to invest all their money into the stock market. So all of that inheritance and all of the church's money. Um, he, uh, he lost the money, uh, all of it. Uh, when he started losing in the stock market, he took to gambling. 
And um, from, uh, from there, he, uh, he pushed his family away. Two of his children had spent their lives preparing for the ministry, whom he now ran out of the church in a very dramatic fashion. He was so ashamed of all this that he left his wife a note saying he couldn't return until he had gotten all the money back. He essentially vanished without a sound. A private investigator found him gambling in the South. Uh, He accepted defeat but never admitted it uh, and came home a shell of the man of God as people knew. Uh, His jaded and proud heart had led him into a mind of foolishness. His uh, children would sincerely tell him as an old man, Dad, just don't speak. It's just, it's all wrong. Uh, His story ends in a casino. Um, Sitting next to his youngest son, an unbeliever, and uh, he died at the slot machine. Um, he had a heart attack, he fell backward, and uh, he passed on to the next life. And uh, why do I tell you this story? Not a happy story. Um, it goes on after him. His wife ended up working in a factory for many years after that. His eldest son prepared, prepared for the ministry vigorously, but could never really return to that. His daughter left his church in tears after committing years to that church, to that school. His youngest son, the prodigal son, has yet to return. And I drove by his church in college um, with his best friend, who is now a pastor at another church. An old man now who still tenses up when he sees the church they built with their own hands. Many people were left for the worse after this man fell. So why am I telling you? Um, Backsliding is incredibly ugly. Um, Thanks be to God that most people never have to go through that. Um, this is very similar to what Jonah has just found himself in. Um, It's a terrifying time. It's something preachers are afraid of. Um, I'll admit, I'm I'm before the road of being a preacher, but it's a scary thing to think that after 30 years of faithfulness, that could happen in in a year or so. Um, It seems that sanctification over a lifetime um, is a very slow in some seasons, but, but backsliding is just like that. A very slippery slope. Uh, Jonah's story is like this, and and we don't have all the details of either of these stories, but we do have the details of God's involvement in Jonah's story. When we left Jonah in chapter 1, he was a dead man. That's where he is at at the end of verse 16. The mariners, he's been under the water, he's gone, he's dead, and they are thanking God that they've been delivered. Thanks be to God that he delivers sinners like us from spiritual death by the blood of his son. And that's what we see for Jonah in, in chapter 2. I'm going to start in, um, in verse 17 of uh, chapter 1. That's where we left off, and I'll go all the way through chapter 2. Um, this is the section of the fish, but this is not about a fish. <laughs> this chapter is very much about redemption by God through steadfast love, and it's a foreshadowing of who Christ is for us. I'll begin reading the word. So they've just thrown him over. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the sea, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, 
yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. This is the word of the Lord. So I'll consider verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 17 on its own, just for a minute. Um, it says, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. This is, of course, miraculous, very famous. You know, this is one of the things, if you, if you had any experience, any Sunday school in any catechism, you've got creation, you've got Noah, you've got the fish, and then you're at Jesus. So um, very, very famous, but let's not get distracted by the fish. I'll talk about the fish, but the main point of the story of Jonah is not the fish or the whale. It's about Christ. It's preparing God's people for Christ's coming. This is about this is saying something about the new covenant headed their way that we're all under. This is a miraculous and providential act by God, and it's no trouble for the God of the Bible. There's all sorts of allegorizations of the fish. Did it really happen? Yes, it really happened. We believe that um, God can raise Christ from the dead. God can get his people out of Egypt. Um, God can save Jonah through a fish. We'll, we'll leave it there. Um, so I said it was providential and miraculous. What do I mean by providential? Well, John Piper in his huge book, Providence, defines, defines it this way. He says, in reference to God, the noun providence has come to mean the act of purposely providing for or sustaining and governing the world. It's an intentional use of his sovereignty. That's how I define providence. It's God doing, it's doing what God does with his sovereignty. Um, he goes on to say that the fish in this is the prime example of God's providence over animals or plants, and later we'll see this again in chapter 4 with the plant and the worm. Um, we move on to the next part of that verse. Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. This is idiomatic and prophetic. What do I mean by that? Idiomatic in terms of uh, what it means to the audience. Three days under is very much dead. Um, that's one of the reasons why the early the early church did not doubt the validity of the resurrection, or at least that is the message, that Christ really died and really was risen again. We see that in the story of Lazarus. They say, it's going to smell in there because he's dead. <laughs> and uh, so that's idiomatic. The people are saying, okay, he was assumed dead. Those, those mariners, they're not looking back for Jonah. There's nothing to look back for. There was no saving him. In the middle of the, you're in the middle of the Mediterranean. Ancient people weren't exactly the best swimmers anyway, and you would never make it. So he, uh, he's dead to the people, as far as they know. He's obviously dead. That's what the whole three days and three nights thing. And then it's prophetic in the sense that it's foreshadowing Christ. And we'll get back to that in verse 10. Oops, sorry, running out of space. So then we have Jonah's prayer. This is the bulk of chapter 2. Verses 1 through 9, um, you could call this a psalm of thanksgiving. It's a poem. It, it very much mirrors other psalms. And he's, 
quoting a bunch of different areas of the Bible, and I'll, I'll bring those out as, it, as it's needed. But essentially, this is a prayer of a man who is lost, who is saved from death. Um, he's just experienced the intense and usually once-in-a-lifetime experience, like the moment of death. He was on the cusp of the grave. He was practically laying in his grave, being buried by water rather than earth. It's essentially gone from there's no hope, he's, he's at despair, this is the end. And then the Lord delivers him. So 2-1, he's praying to his God in the belly of the fish. He realizes he's not dead, it's dark. It's probably a very strange experience that we cannot empathize with. But um, he says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried, and you heard my voice. So the belly of Sheol, Sheol, the grave, the place of the dead, he's there. He's, it's over. He's like, it's over. And right at that last moment of consciousness, the Lord hears his prayer. He remembers his God. He remembers his God's promise. And so he summarizes his prayer. He was dying, and the Lord saved him. And he's seen his experience through the lens of God's word. His language in verses 2 and 3 is almost identical to the portion of the chapter of Lamenta- a portion of the chapter of Lamentations that we read. And the next line, after the two there, in Lamentations, Jeremiah says, I am lost. And so that's what Jonah is saying. I was lost. Like, it was done. I was, I was cut off. Or at least that's what he was experiencing. Um, this makes a good point. It reminds us that when we are suffering, it is important for us to remember that God brought Jonah to the point of death, and he delivered it from it. So he's sovereign over our suffering, but he's also sovereign over our deliverance. And if you're found in Christ, he's got you. He's a father that's just pulling you out before you're too far deep in the water. So we'll move on to 2.4. Jonah thought he had been re- rejected by God. I'm driven away from your sight. As in, he's in the place where God has turned from him, and it's just utter darkness. That's the idea behind Sheol in the Old Testament. And then he says, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. What does he mean by that? Well, the temple is the place of God's presence. We know that after the temple was built, God's presence enters the temple. And so Jonah is saying, I thought I was a goner. Like I knew, I I didn't just think I was a goner. I knew I was a goner. And yet you're going to deliver me from that. Only a sovereign God. He goes on to that experience of death again in in verses 5 through um, 7. The waters closed over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. That's that experience of being entrapped. Like he knows there's no way out. Verse six, at the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose, bar, the land whose bars closed upon me forever. So the, the bars closed forever. Um, he's, he's, I'm very dead. <laughs> Yet you brought up my life from the pit. Oh Lord, my God. At the end, God was decisively there. At the moment of unconsciousness, he, he remembered the Lord and his promises. And he's been quoting scripture this whole time, and now we come to the, ver- to a very, the very important verse. Verse 8 is at the very center of the book. So if you lined up all the words in Hebrew, and you just went for the very center, you would get this sentence. And it doesn't really stick out like a sore thumb, but it's a poem, so it has a rhythm to it. It has a couplet order, there's a cadence, there's a... There's, a, there's a, a melody, if you will. There's a harmony of these words. And to the original folks, this verse would stick out. It would be prominent. Um, why? Well, if you look in your Bible, all of these verses have been 
um, two couplets so far. And verse 9 will be two couplets. But verse 8 is one couplet. It's, and it's just two lines. And it's sort of, in a, it, it, it doesn't ruin, it's not like it's just like a cacophonous break-in style, but it sticks out to you. The only thing I can the only thing I could think of to relate to it today was like if you're in a big mega church and you're singing a song and you're like stuck in the bridge for like the eighth time and like you never know if you're going to get out of that sanctuary. It would, it would, he's, the, the writer, Jonah, is doing this on purpose. Like he's making it stick out and everyone is knowing like, okay, there's a deeper level, there's a deeper layer. As we've seen in Jonah, there's two or three levels to a lot of it. It's, that's what's fast, that's what's beautiful about God's word is that it, this book is written in a way that children can understand it and yet it's, the depth is, um, men don't write that way on their own. <laughs> they just don't. Um, but the content of verse eight, I'm just gonna read it because this is the center message, this is the center of the message of Jonah for the, for the people who needed to hear it then and we need to hear it today. Verse eight says, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. So what does that mean? You could translate it a different, a, a different way. Um, you could say, those who give attention to empty vapors abandon their loyalty. So Jonah is saying that those who pay regard or those who give attention or those who care so much about these empty vapors, this is a pretty common idea in the Old Testament. You might remember, when you hear that word vapor, you might think, life is like a vapor. It comes and it goes. Well, these idols are, these prophets are often calling idols empty vapors. They lack substance, like they have no essence. They're not real in the sense that God is real or the way that you and I are real. They're, they're elusive or they're a trick. Um, he says they're empty and they're a, like an empty breath. They're, you're caring about things that aren't really, don't have any gravity to them. They, they're here for a season and they're gone. Um, on Judgment Day, they will be gone. <laughs> um, he says people who prioritize those abandon their, and it says steadfast love here. And um, that word steadfast love is tricky, um, but great. Um, why do I say that? Well, it's hard to translate, and so I've put it in your notes. I'm not actually a big fan of like bringing in like a Greek or Hebrew word that you're not going to remember anyways. But... Um, this one was too important because it's translated so differently throughout the Bible, and yet it's a, unifi- it's a unifying principle when it comes to being in the covenant, being a, coven- being a member of the covenant community. This is, this is what we do. This is it. This is, the, this is the content of the covenant. This is what is going on between members of the covenant, and this is absolutely what God is doing with us. The word is hesed. And how do we translate hesed? Well, there's a lot of different ways to translate hesed. The simplest way is mercy. Um, you'll see that all over the Bible. When you see the word mercy, there's other words for mercy, but this one is common. Um, other ways, loving kindness, that one's very common as well. We probably have the best one here in Jonah, steadfast love. Um, but there's other ways. Um, it, it's, just a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a broad word with a decisive intent. Um, other ways you could translate that word are loyal love. I, I'm a big fan, given our tradition, uh, covenant loyalty, covenant love. Um, that's what hesed is. Um, that's, how God loves, that's how God loves his people. Um, that's how God loves Christians. That's how God loved Jonah, clearly, because Jonah just keeps running. And even at the end of this, we'll see that he still doesn't repent, but God's 
love is steadfast and endures forever. Um, I pulled a few um, important moments of this word from Scripture. I think the most, uh, you'll hear, you'll, you'll recognize it when I tell it to you. Micah 6.8. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness, oops, sorry, and to walk humbly with your God. So there's that hesed, love kindness. Here's another one. Here's a New Testament one for you. 1 John 4.19. Obviously, it's in Greek, but it's a simple verse. John says, we love because he first loved us. This is why loving your neighbor as yourself is so central to loving God with all you are. It models God's hesed for us. Um, it's that love that God extends to us, and then we extend to each other, and we even are called to extend that love to sinners. Here's a good one at the beginning of these covenants unfolding in the, in the Old Testament. Well, not the beginning, but uh, in Exodus 34. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. There it is again, this, this, this thread of steadfast love, this, this centerpiece of God's covenant faithfulness is his steadfast love for his people. We saw in Lamentations this morning, in the second part of our pardon of uh, our assurance of pardon, steadfast love. Um, in our psalm today, Psalm 118, begins with steadfast love. And then uh, I just felt I had to show this to you. If you want to turn to Psalm 136, this is, uh, this is a great, uh, <laughs> this, is, this is hesed, if there ever was hesed in the, in the Old Testament. Psalm 136. We're not going to read the whole thing, but the title in your ESV says, His steadfast love endures forever. And then if you look at each line, it says something about God. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. And then it says, for his steadfast love endures forever. His hesed st- stands forever. His covenant faithfulness, his covenant loyalty, his loving kindness, and his mercy endures forever. It doesn't change because he doesn't change. And then it just says all these things about God. It shows, it takes us. It takes us through creation. It takes us through his glory. It takes us through the exodus. It takes us through them building Israel and conquering the land. And after each line of saying something of that nature, it says, his steadfast love endures forever. It's showing that all of those things happen providentially by his steadfast love. That's what providence is for the church. Is it's experiencing God's steadfast love as history plays out. And then it ends with the Christian ethic. Give thanks to God, the God of heaven, for his steadfast love endures forever. And so the, the, the response to receiving that grace is, of course, gratitude. This is what Jonah is saying to them. You, Israel, have forgotten your steadfast love. You've forgotten what was given to you, that mercy. And so you're not extending it to others. And that's, just like all Psalms, that is so applicable to all of us. We forget each day and we forget to treat the people we see as image bearers. It, it gets easier and easier as you gain more knowledge of the Bible and gain more knowledge of sin to either love people more or to condemn them more. And if we want to be serious Christians, you have to remember who we were at the beginning of that process. They're an image bearer just like I am, and I'd be just like them if the Lord hadn't changed my heart. The silly thing about this whole prayer of Jonah is, is he's still not thinking that way, even though he's praying it. <laughs> it's just the irony is it's laughable, but it's serious as well. He's, he's just not sorry for not caring about Nineveh. And the Lord just took him all the way to the brink. Uh, 
he was, he was on, he was drowning. And the Lord saved him, even though he said, I would rather die than help the Ninevites. And the Lord said, you don't want what's best for you. You're certainly not worried, not concerned with my glory. And I'm going to save you anyway. <laughs> Thanks be to God that God has that posture towards you and me. Um, I'll move back to Jonah now. Verse 9. So verse 8 is the center of this book, and we need to keep that thread, because that's, that's Jonah's preaching, poke, that's him poking the bear as he's giving his, his message. And we, we need that poke. Um, verse 9. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So there's a little more irony in there, but first of all, Jonah is saying, well, I'm grateful for being saved. Because it turns out, I didn't want to die. <laughs> as soon as I had decided that I'm not going to do my job. If you remember back in chapter 1, they start questioning him, like, who are you? What are you doing? He answers all those questions except for one. He answers them in order, but he skips one. They ask him, what's your occupation? Well, his job is a prophet, but he just quit. <laughs> so he didn't answer that question. <laughs> he's like, I guess I'm not a prophet. I don't want to do it. But um, he's being grateful that at that moment of essentially spiritual suicide, he turned around and said, wait, I don't want to go into the pit. Like, I'm a sinner too. Like, this is, this is as bad as it gets. And so he's supposed to learn from his situation. He's supposed to learn from the whole fish ordeal that you've been given mercy the same way that God is trying to give mercy to the Ninevites. Who are you to think that you get to pick who gets it just because you don't like them because you're a nationalist and they're those other guys who could probably take you out if they wanted to. That's the way the ancient world worked. He says salvation belongs to the Lord, but he's not acting like it. If salvation belongs to the Lord, he, he can will it to wherever he wants it to go. But he's, and he's saying that. He's like, oh, I'm so grateful for me, but man, don't save them. <laughs> uh, he's, it, there's just, Jonah's not done being worked on yet. And we'll see that, especially in chapter 4. And there's a little hint of it here in verse 10. And the Lord spoke to the fish. So there's more of that providence, just the way he spoke to a world, and it came into being. He can, he can speak to the fish just fine, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. That word vomit should stick out to you. It doesn't say he escaped from the fish. It doesn't say that the fish brought him back to dry land. It doesn't use like deliverance language. It used like spewing like disgusting language. Um, Revelation says, God says he'll vomit up from the mouth. Like, you probably thought of... Uh, don't be lukewarm, be hot or cold. If you're lukewarm, I will spit you up. So that word vomit is not pleasant, but an important distinction in Scripture. Um, as if Jonah's heart is just hypocritical. It's just like, you're, you're, you're lukewarm, I'm spitting you back up. He spits him back up, probably in Palestine, and now Jonah, we'll see in, verse, we'll see in chapter 3, he's finally going to go to Nineveh. But there's another thread, a really, really, really critical thread that we can't miss with the two narrative verses of this chapter. So there's only two narrative verses in this chapter. The first verse, sorry, uh, the first verse of, uh, that I started with, 117, and uh, the last verse of this chapter, chapter 10. The prayer's sandwiched in there, but as far as the narrative's concerned, he goes into the fish, he's there for three days and three nights, and then he's spewed, and he's spewed back, he's, he's given up and he's back on land. Um, if you're not hearing Jesus in there, um, <laughs> I, I hope I'm bringing that out. Why do I say that? Who was under the earth for three days and three nights? Jesus was. 
the irony, the thing we have to be careful with is that John is more like us in Jesus' situation where Jesus was perfect and did nothing wrong. Let me just point a few of those out. Um, um, sorry, lost my spot. What are, the, what are a few of the things that make them different? And what are the few things that make them the same? Um, they're both a prophet sent from somewhere else. So Jesus is the son of man from Israel, but came down, right? So there's some hypostatic union. But Jesus is from, he's, a, he's from an alien place. He needs to come in and save us. Jonah's from that other place across the known world. He's coming over. He needs to go over to Nineveh and bring them the message. Um, unlike Jonah, Jesus did not run from his assigned task. If you read these prophets, it's a hard job. Remember what Daryl said, 40 years he was, telling the, he was telling the people, and the people hated them. The funny thing about Jonah, he was probably liked, and then after doing this job, he was probably hated. He's going to have to go back from Nineveh, and he's going to have to go tell his family and his friends that I preached, I preached calamity to the Ninevites, and they repented, and God didn't destroy them. And they would all be upset. They're like, those guys are going to get raised up and come kill us now. <laughs> that will not make you a popular guy if you're in- instrumental in making that happen. Jesus was a hated prophet as well in his own time. But he did not turn from his job. He, Isaiah says he turned his head to Jerusalem like a flint. When his, when his ministry begins, if you watch his path, he's making a beeline for Jerusalem. And his his disciples are still just young fishermen, but they see what's going on. They're like, Jesus, if you keep going, we're going to die. Like, you're going to get killed, and we're, they're going to kill us too. Like, that's the, that's, the, that's the tone. They're like, slow down, but he's out in front of them. He's going, he's going perfectly obedient to his death. That's how Jesus is different than us in our fickleness and our hypocrisy. We're like Jonah if we are called to, if we are called to have a prophetic ministry apart from Christ. So three days under... Miraculously, miraculously delivered, brought back to our world. Jonah's brought back to finish the job. Christ is brought back as vindication of his work to reverse the curse of sin and death for sinners. And uh, I hope you're seeing the new covenant sort of budding in these prophets. I'm hopeful because Pastor Kendall's covenant series has been so great. I'm, I'm hopeful that we'll get to hear some stuff about the prophets. But... Um, the new covenant is budding in Jonah. It's budding in the prophets. It's being brought back up. That whole idea of blessing the nations is being brought back up. But complacent Israel doesn't like that part. They don't like that part of Hesed. They don't like that part of steadfast love. Wait, you're going to give that to somebody else? But they're terrible. God's response is like, you were terrible. <laughs> and you're still terrible. But, but I'm going to change you. And uh, I'm going to make you more than, I'm going to make you better. The point I want to make about Jonah 2 is this, is that we see steadfast love and faithfulness for Jonah, just like it very well, very, very well could have been extended to that fallen pastor I told you about. And the fullest manifestation of God's steadfast love for us is Christ. Christ is the full manifestation of God's steadfast love for us, and that can never change. It endures forever. I thought it appropriate um, Jesus actually talks about Jonah. That's one of the great things about this book is that Jesus gives us a piece of interpretation that is like critical, <laughs> critical to understanding the book. If you want to turn to the end of Matthew 12, Jesus says this. It's uh, verses 38 through 42. If you're like me and you always miss those verse numbers, 
It's uh, Matthew 12, 38 through 42. It's titled The Sign of Jonah. He's, on, he's in his ministry. The Pharisees are after him. They're trying to find a chink in his armor. They cannot. <laughs> and then they do this. They say, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to, to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with the generation, with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. It's kind of a sore, kind of a sore spot for these Pharisees, because the whole vibe after these prophets came was that God stopped speaking. After these, after these series of prophets, what, 400 years, and we haven't heard from the Lord, that's a new experience for God's people, especially after all the exiles and the coming back and the just sort of, Lord, what's next? Um, Jesus says, you won't get a sign except the sign of Jonah. What does he mean by the sign of Jonah? Well, that's, that's referencing the resurrection. He's saying, I'm not going to give you a sign now because you're, t- you're, you're testing the Lord. You're, you're, you're asking for... He's going through all of these things and why their questions are bad, why they're, why they're tone deaf to actually how you would respond to the Messiah. And he's raised up from the earth as vindication, vindication for his work. It's to show God's work and God's providence. Um, I think we can't miss that in Jonah. This chapter is not about the whale. <laughs> the whale is a means. It's instrumental to the, to, the, to the song of Jonah, but it's not the melody. Christ is, the melody of, Christ is the melody of this book. He's the melody of the new covenant. He's the, he's the essential piece. And God is preparing his people for this. And he's preparing Jonah for this while he's still backsliding. He's at the crux here when he comes out of the fish. Like when he's praying, it's like, all right, we're going from down to up. Like we're going up now. But his heart is still a mess. He's not penitent. And truthfully, that's who we are after we become Christians. We're not, we're not even close to perfect. We... We're complicated people. Sproul says the most complicated thing in the world is a Christian. <laughs> because you've gone from simple life, just caring about yourself, and now you're wrestling. That's why the confession today in that, in that section you read, it's, the sanctification is a war. You have the man of flesh and you have the man of spirit, and by God's grace, he can enable us to feed the right side of us so that this man is put to death. Um, that's what we're seeing in Jonah, and it's just the narrative just shows us how just messy and convoluted our own thinking can be while we go through that. But he's still saving him. So how do we how do we apply this? What what should we take away from chapter two? Just remember, like I was just saying, this chapter actually shows Jonah's overall selfishness, but this also shows God's sovereignty in saving a disobedient prophet. And so this is a reminder of hope that if we ever do find ourselves backsliding, if we ever are starting to doubt, we are going from idols and sins that we enjoy and then we get, past, we get to this point where we think we're too far gone and we start to despair, you have to remember that the Lord's steadfast love endures forever and he never changes. It's never going to change. He's not saving you because you're good or because 
You live a life, you live a faithful life for 50 years, and that's what makes a Christian. That's a great thing. Sometimes I've heard people say things like, or at least secondhand, I've heard this like, oh, well, you can't be saved on your deathbed because you lived your whole life of sin and now you're just looking for a way out. That's not the way a Christian thinks about it. Not at all. We pity those people and we praise God for those sorts of salvations because we were given the gift of a life of peace and, and grace for, for our lifetime. If, you're, if you became a Christian when you were young, you, were not, you are not living under fear of death the way that other people do for years or the whole time. We have to reorient our view of the our view of love to God's view of hesed, God's steadfast love. Jonah is still very, a very imperfect vessel. We are ourselves, we need to ask ourselves, am I backsliding? Am I currently very prone to go back to the vomit of things I wrestle with but can't overcome on my own? Um, Sinclair Ferguson said this um, in regards to this passage. He says, Restoration to fellowship with God must begin in the very area where rebellion existed. That is what repentance basically involves. So there's two things. In backsliding, the goal needs to be return to God's presence and return to God's word. What do I mean by return to God's word? Well, if you notice, when Jonah is as good as dead, he remembers the Lord and he forms a prayer from the scriptures he knows. All of those lines of scripture can be found elsewhere in the Bible. He's going back to the truth of God. He's remembering the promises. It's, that's critical to stopping backsliding. This isn't simply application, read your Bible. It's remembering if I'm backsliding, I need to be, and I'm starting to despair, I need to remember God's promises that he has not changed and that he is not allowing me to backslide out of his just wrath for me. He's allow, he's, I'm backsliding because he's chastising me to do better. John Bunyan said, thou art beaten so that thou may be better. Easy to say, hard to experience. Easy to say, hard to experience. And then about returning to God's house and God's presence. It's critical um, to, to stopping backsliding in our lives. Um, that's what that fallen pastor desperately needed. He needed return to God's presence. Ferguson continued, he said, increasingly we need to be convinced that the most important thing in the world, in our personal lives, our evangelism, and our worship is the presence of God. You would have thought that that half million dollars would have been a blessing to that little church, right? We're going to the next step. Just remember, as our church grows, we've already got the most important piece. <laughs> we've already got the most important piece is that we have the gospel, we have God's steadfast love, and we can never compromise that for anything else. Our church is young, our church will grow, our church is growing. But we need to always keep that steadfast love at the center of what we're doing, God's presence at the center. I'm confident we will. That's why I'm here. <laughs> but um, that's the two things. Returning to God's word, returning to God's presence. That is the best defense against backsliding. Another thing about God's word. If that pastor's church had had elders, would that money have disappeared? No, no. People are like, dude, where the money, where's the money going? God's word, like I love how Andrew put it last week, he said, we're not making this stuff up. <laughs> why do we do church the way we do? Why do we, why do we have the liturgy? Why do we have eldership the way we do? Why are we congregational? God's word. These are the defenses against backsliding. God's word is our baseline, God's presence, his, and his church, each other's accountability. We're helping each other out a lot more than you might think just getting together on a Sunday. Like Kendall said, it's really good to be here Sunday. Lastly, and we'll get to this in chapter 3, 
because that's more oriented towards evangelism. If we have been delivered from a deserved death, and all believers have, then we should easily extend that mercy to others. We must remember that if we are called as Christ was called, we would be just like Jonah. He's the only one that was perfectly obedient. He's the only one that was actively and passively obedient. He gave his life for us. And because we're like Jonah, that's why God chastises us. He's preparing us for his complete presence. He didn't let Jonah die because he had chosen to love Jonah, on a personal note for Jonah. He had chosen to love Jonah, and Jonah wasn't ready for his manifest glory (laughs) in the eternal state. So he's still preparing Jonah out of love. And it's brutal. He's preparing us the same way. When we're backsliding, when we're suffering, he's intimately there. He's not doing those things out of hatred for us. He's doing those things because he loves us the way a father loves a child. And he's preparing us for eternal glory. I'll uh, close uh, with uh, some words from Proverbs 3. It's also in Hebrews 12. Um, The writers say, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. His steadfast love endures forever. We forget easily, but we can help each other not to forget. I'll pray us out. Holy Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that in our backsliding, in our fickleness, in our idolatrous hearts, you are always working for us. You are always working in us. And we know that there's nothing we could do to change that because you're not doing it for us. You're doing it for your son's sake. Your son is worthy in our place. Help us to take hold of that truth. Help us to take hold of that insurance. We, we ask in Christ's name, that you would keep us from backsliding, you would keep us merciful towards others, you would keep us loving our neighbor the way you have loved us, and that we would never justify the way Jonah justifies himself. We would never justify treating someone in a way that we would not want to be treated. I pray for our church. I thank you for our church. I thank you for the light we are to Decatur. I pray that we would extend steadfast love, extend your steadfast love, to the people in our lives. And I pray that Christ would be exalted and magnified through all that we do. We pray all these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.